Y'all ready? Blues is art. I'm going back to the blues. Hey there, Haddon Sayers here, journeyman blues guitarist, singer, songwriter with more than 25 years of touring under my belt. Welcome to the Haddon Sayers Blues is Art podcast. Intimate, sometimes unpredictable conversations with the biggest names in modern blues. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Blues is Our Podcast. This is Haddon Sayers. This week it is, uh, let's see, today is May 12, 2020. We're still in COVID lockdown. Still a good time to do podcasts and to record new music. And that's just what I'm trying to do. This podcast in particular is a special one for me because it's got my good friend Michael Orlando, a progressive multi-instrumentalist. He plays uh, mandolin, banjo, guitar. He is from Davidson, North Carolina. He's best known for his band Cast Iron Filter, which was started in Davidson, North Carolina and played around the world. Uh, opening for bands like the Avid Brothers, Goo Goo Dolls, David Allen Coe, Nickel Creek, etc., etc. They were signed to RCA Records and they charted number one at Cross Country Serious Radio. <clears throat> Excuse me, since that time, Mike has gone on to play with the Blue Dogs, uh, Grammy winning traditional bluegrass band the Carter Brothers, uh, Grammy nominated blues artist Michelle Malone, and he's even done a Christmas record with me. Mike is not really, I don't think he considers himself a blues artist per se, but he was on a blues agency, Intrepid Artists of Charlotte, North Carolina, that handles a lot of the blues bands in and around the country. And uh, also ends up being asked to perform with blues bands all the time for whatever reason. I think it's because he likes to hop genres like it's no big deal. And that's one of the things I admire about him. Without further ado, let's get right to it. Let's welcome to the podcast, Mr. Michael Orlando. Michael Orlando, how you doing, brother? I am well, my friend. I'm out of the <laughs> <Awesome>. house. <laughs> Are you in your studio behind your house? Your yeah, you, uh, garage you've been studio? here. I've got a, um, a little studio above my garage with all my stuff, and it's my safe place. I'm glad we've, we've done this podcast in this way, meaning that uh, you gave me your info last night late. And even though we've been friends for years, um, I've not as polished up on, on the timeline of your career. And so I, I don't really have that great of notes. And I think that maybe that would, will cause hopefully a better interview, more <laughs> relaxed. My illustrious career that <laughs> I outlined in well, four minutes last night. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, did you write that last night? No, I found it in, um, I was going back through old emails and clicked music bio and that popped up and I just changed a few things and sent it to you. There you go. But it you is, included me in there. Well, that's that's what, what, I wasn't in there before and then you... <laughs> no, I was happy to see that you were in there because you were... Oh, nice. You were and are an important part of the musical path. <laughs> cool. So uh, for people who don't know, you are a mandolin banjo and guitarist mainly mandolinist i think that that is uh your calling card signature and um yeah no one's ever called I, for the banjo and i don't, no, I don't know if that's yet. just a, like a music systemic problem or if that's me but literally no one has ever called for the banjo so i'm a mandolinist um and guitarist unless there's another guitarist around which there always seems to be yeah there you go like you yeah well, uh, one of the connections I was going to make was the way that I came to be uh, affiliated with you and friends with you was is through a blues connection. This is a blues podcast, although it's my goal that frequently the Blues is Art podcast strays from blues because blues is kind of a feeling, and that's really all that all that's important as far as um, the connection. Yeah. Um. But yeah, uh, we had the same agent for years, uh, intrepid artists from Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, they are a, definitely a very blues-centric uh, booking agency. And I'm assuming that the way that you guys connected was because you were a Charlotte-based band and uh, your band, Cast Iron Filter, was a Charlotte-based band initially before you became a, you know, a touring national band. And was that something that 
am I am I correct in assuming that Rick Booth from Intrepid Artist was interested in you because of your popularity? Yeah, we were. You know, we were just in the local scene, and so they would see us and kind of watched us grow up in Charlotte. Um, I think we were, if not the first band, one of the first bands that kind of pushed them past like the blues specific genre. Like they were known for guitar slingers, as you know. Right. And uh, we didn't do any of that, so it was almost like we were the the what the right word is like ugly stepchild of the roster, like we were like the young bluegrass band in the midst of like all these like blues legends. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think though, that that was something that they were, they wanted to push out of that, you know, that box of being uh, blues centric and let the world know that they had, you know, some hip things. So you were the hip, the hip stepchild. That's so how, yeah, speak, it's hard to imagine. In my opinion. The, yeah, <laughs> the man at the forefront of <laughs> being hip. Well, and that was the thing. I think that, uh, the one uh, connection that that intrepid artists made with your band and with you specifically was that there was no guitar slinger in there, but there was a mandolin slinger in there. And you, as the soloist of the band, kind of became that, you know, quote unquote, guitar slinger because you had that energy that they connected with, that Rick Booth especially connected with, I think. And I know that because, as I recall, you know, Rick... Rick Booth is a great guy, interesting guy. I've known him for, been a friend of his for a long time. And uh, it seems that when he latches onto something, he creates this, you know, because he owns a, an agency, he creates this, this, this little snippet, a quote about that band. And your, your solos and your prowess on the mandolin were kind of the focus of his attention when he would describe the band. So, yeah, and he always, he was, you. I appreciate that. I think he was, always supportive of the progressive like mandolin thing which like he wanted me to watch the guitar players and get with the guitar guys like you and like you know he sent us out with dickie betts and like these you know some um these guys that you know he was like you if you can bring that energy and that soul to the mandolin he's like i think you guys will have something um yeah. And I think that was good advice because we were so young and so like musically immature that that stuff hadn't even like entered my realm yet. Like I didn't know who those guys were and, um, you know, we were just like a college band. Yeah. <laughs> playing music. Well, at the, at the same time, that musical immaturity is oftentimes, you know, the energy that's there is the, and the exuberance that's there is the part that, that, that's uh, magnetic for people that people want to, they gravitate to and want to see and want to witness. So, yeah, that's right. And I think that's, um, you know, I think most musicians have that piece of their musical journey, right? Like, um, when I look back, it feels like very immature and I have a hard time like listening to it or watching it. Um, because we, we were like all energy and no, not no substance, but the substance was second to the energy. And that's me particularly, not my bandmates. Um, you know, it's just like 18 year old, like headbanging with a mandolin. It was kind of weird. Like when I look right. back on it, I'm like, you know, it's part of the journey, but maybe not the <laughs> destination. <laughs> well, it was definitely a, a, a big destination for a lot of people. And, that's, and I don't want to undermine that. that. I hate to, you know, I'm not raining no, on the cast iron filter parade. That was a very important part of our musical development. It's just now that I'm 40 years old, I look back and I think like, you know, if, may, if I personally had just been a touch more musically mature, that band probably would have lasted longer and I wouldn't have like inflicted the, <laughs> the, the damage upon the band itself, you know, just from the exuberance. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like, um, you, like, well, let me, let me back up. So when you started playing mandolin, was it in college? Was it like a, a were you in bands in high school or how did that evolve? Uh, no, I started playing guitar when I was, I think, 13. I was at a boarding school. Um, and then mandolin at 16. So I had a couple years in when we formed this band at Davidson College. And it just was coincidental. Like the people who were playing music got together in such an easy environment to, to rehearse and practice and test it out on your friends. Right. Um, so I really grew up as a mandolin player in that band. Um but from that point forward, I was sort of wholeheartedly devoted to learning and to getting better. Um, and so it was a, 
you know, just spent a lot of time on it. But it wasn't until age 18, really. And you were simultaneously, like, developing this uh, this skill as a musician and going to school and successfully going to going to college? I mean, did you continue to all the way through and graduate, right? I made it through um, and did okay. Not, you know, they don't write about me in the annals of <laughs> Davidson College. <laughs> but um, my professors were really supportive and they loved the music thing. I mean, this is a small liberal arts college and I still live in Davidson. Um, mm. It's a great little school. And it was so small that my teachers, you know, they would come to the gigs in Charlotte, you know, we were like 19 years old and, you know, drink with the other college kids. <laughs> it was, and so good. like when, you know, by senior year, when we were playing three or four nights a week, they were totally into it. And it was just kind of like the college rallied around us. Um, so I felt supported and also got through and have a degree, so, which nice. thankfully yep. right? <laughs> yeah, that's a lot like that sounds a lot like my path. It, my my school was Texas A and M, much much bigger school. Yeah. But the music scene there, you know, was certainly not like what it would have been had I gone to University of Texas in Austin, where everybody's a musician. I probably would have felt so threatened right. in that environment yeah. that I probably would not have, you know, nobody would have fostered my musical career in in the in the early days in the way that my friends the musicians that were the really good musicians that were local were supportive. So, yeah, I think that, that in a, in a way there was, there's a lot of similarities there and that's, that's really what, that's, a, that's a critical thing for somebody who's, you know, never really thought about being a musician until they got to their older teens. You know, that you always hear about right. those people who were the prodigies, prodigies yeah. three and four years old. And then there are the guys like us who are not really thinking about stepping on a stage till they're in their late teens or early twenties even. Right. And looking back, you know, you think, I don't know how you view it, but that feels young now. But I hear what you're saying. Like, you know, you see these, like Chris Thiele is the best mandolin player on earth, in my opinion. He's the guy that uh, took over for Garrison Keillor on a right. very home companion and morphed it into Very this, familiar like, with, with Chris Thiele. Yeah. And, you know, he played that way from birth. Like he was just mm -hmm. put on this earth that way and like worked incredibly hard and by the time he was 12 he was like you know everybody knew like this is the guy um but yeah that you know wasn't like that for me and obviously for you you know did you make it through uh AM? is that the right way to ask i, did. I, <laughs> <laughs> I made it i graduated uh with a degree in journalism and uh, i guess i'm using it right now since i'm doing yeah man. interviews with people but uh uh yeah, I immediately, all I wanted to do was, was go and be in a band. And, you know, maybe by, by the time I was a junior, I was, I wanted to leave. And my parents said, you know, you should stick it out. It's only a year. And it, when you're that young, a year feels like forever. But thankfully, they, their wisdom uh, was heeded. And I stayed long enough to get my degree and then immediately moved to Austin and joined a band right. and went on tour and all that form. stuff. Did you, um, yeah. what do you think now? Do you think your degree was is relevant are you happy you did i'm well yes i i am because it's you know it, the the social mores that that still you know pervade as far as um what people think of you based on whether you have one or not i do appreciate that the fact that i have one um i wouldn't say that i necessarily learned that much about uh you know the mechanics of journalism i probably know more than uh than the average guy on the street but and, and uh, in that way, I guess that's beneficial. But all in all, I think it's just the social experience that was was the huge difference and the behind the scenes part of, you know, driving away from my house uh, after I graduated from high school and moving to college and staying in this in, the, in a dorm and not in a dorm. I, I stayed off campus, yeah. but staying at a, at a four year institution and and uh, developing new friendships with people all over the all over the state and then. All the, those things were the important parts, and I'm I'm really really glad that I that I definitely stayed and did it. So yeah, yeah def, definitely. Yeah, and, I feel the so, same way. It's like you know everyone in my not everyone but in my immediate family were like highly educated people who have multiple degrees, and so in some ways like the fact that I went to a four year liberal college liberal arts college was good, but like you know there were folks pushing it farther. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, I'm glad I finished, but I never had a desire to 
go back to any kind of school after that. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was not, I was not interested in going back to any, any further for any further education for sure. Yeah. I think that that was, that was plenty for me. And, and much like you, my family, uh, not so much, um, uh, highly educated. I mean, they all have four years, four year degrees, but mainly they were business successful business people. Like, right. I have a lot, a lot of cousins that are really close to my age and, you know, most of them are highly successful in business. So to do a, a, uh, you know, the starving musician thing, the starving artist thing for years on end, uh, kind of becomes, it, it's, it's something that you have to deal with that you have to reckon with as far as, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, you know, have these enormous business successes and I'm not going to, my, my career is not going to be judged by the increase in productivity or the increase in, in, uh, success as far as, uh, you know, standard business growth type things but uh yeah but i think you you must have picked up some of that along the way because the conversations you and i have had over the years are very different than the conversations i have with other musicians like um i think you always have had and have your eye on that piece of of what you're doing and you know i'm you know marveled at like the commitment to the business side of your music um and I think it, it, in a lot of ways it allows you to be more creative, right? Like take care of the basics and take care of your family. Definitely. Hit the road. Right. Well, and I appreciate that. I, I think that um, definitely there's like that underlying, underlying feeling that, okay, I have these, they're not expectations. Nobody's ever said, Hey, you know, we really expect you to, you know, make zillions of dollars here. It was, it's more like, you know, I'm just comparing myself, I guess, to my other family members. And, and there is that, um, underlying sense that, you know, business needs to be taken care of yeah. and I need to do the best that I can. And, and, uh, it would be nice to see the bottom line <laughs> increase yearly <laughs> because there is yeah. a certain, there's a certain arc to people's lives that they can judge. You know, uh, there, there's a, there's a social expectation, I think in, uh, in the world that we live in that, that says, you know, if we're not growing, uh, the, if the business is not growing, then something's wrong. It's not like we can stay the same and be happy with it. So, well, let's I, test I that, that theory a little because I mean, that's the pervasiveness of capitalism, right? Like exactly. Um, but you know, the experiment is running its course. And again, like if we had had this conversation two months ago, things would be very different. Like my businesses have been obliterated like mm -hmm. totally obliterated in the last couple of months. And so if anyone's listening to this, those were, you know, restaurants and a real estate business. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that. You in got fact, that on the list? <laughs> I definitely have that on the list. Just, just for, uh, just to, to make it clear for, for clarity's sake for everyone today is Thursday, April 30th, 2020. Oh, and uh, it seems that we're about to start a transition out of, COVID lockdown, so to speak. And, uh, I guess we're all gonna, um, poke our heads up and see what the, uh, what we've done to the economy in this situation, um, in, in, in the interest of flattening the curve for our healthcare providers and for people who could potentially suffer great catastrophes from the COVID virus. So anyway, moving to the conversation that we were just about to start regarding your career, I wanted to I wanted to speak specifically on how you have um, chosen to take a path to include more traditional sources of revenue, your, your businesses, like you described, yeah. you have a real estate business, you have two restaurants, um, you still um, are a lover of the arts, you still are a musician who records and performs on a regular basis. I'm assuming a relatively regular basis. It was. And I'm wondering how you transitioned into that, how you feel about your choice. And also, um, it's it's my personal belief, I think, that as we move forward, people are going to be a lot more open to that whole side hustle, quote-unquote, idea of uh, being a musician, like a serious professional musician who travels the earth and does all those things, but also has, um, other 
you know, more traditional uh, sources of revenue sure. or, or not necessarily traditional sources of revenue, but other sources of revenue uh, in order to make it fly. And that's just the world that we live in as it evolves. And, but I'm curious, you're, you're a fearless guy. You're a fearless performer. Um, you're as you, as you play your instrument, uh, there are no, there are no boundaries for you. I, I love that about your playing. It's one of my favorite things about your playing. And, um, uh, it seems that your, you know, when you decided to switch gears and start some other business, you didn't worry about whether it was going to take up too much of your time or whether your artistry was going to change or anything. You just did what you wanted to do in that same fearless Michael Orlando <laughs> method. Uh, and that's what I want to speak to is, is how did that transition? How did that feel when it was happening? Was there any doubt or did you just, uh, just proceed as, as usual? Yeah. And I think I've, I've forced the segue to this conversation just because it's always been interesting for me to compare notes with you kind of as life evolves and we've both, you know, grown up in and around music, but also, you know, with wives and kids and, you know, an eye on right. business and all these things. It's just interesting to look at the ways people do things differently. Um, so I, after Cast Iron Filter, I played not not with any particular band for more than months or years but um a couple important bands in there were uh the carter brothers band they were bluegrass band out of nashville um and i was spending time in nashville and just wasn't really connecting to the scene and it wasn't driven by success or lack of success or fear it was just it felt too indulgent um like too musically indulgent just to exist that way. And I was looking for some way to like deepen my, I don't know if you call it roots or connection, um, like community connection. And so the things that grew out of music were like, I felt like at the time were natural evolution, but the people who were watching me do this were like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you know, particularly people who cared about like my parents and um, who really loved where I'd gone with music. I think we're a little bit taken aback that, like you could depart something that you were seemingly having success with and good at to try something else. And so, right. um, I mean, that was the gentle pushback. Um, and then the, the important people in our musical world, and we have some of those in common, like you mentioned Rick Booth, who, you know, in, in the Rick way would call you and say like, Orlando, what are you doing? Like you're wasting your life. Like, right. you know, and it's <laughs> like pushing past those things to still do what you want. Right. Like in much the same way that I think musicians are self-focused, I won't say self-absorbed, um, you know, self-focused for the sake of their art. I was the same way for the sake of what I thought was my path to well-being, like just what felt good. So, right. and I wanted that to include more financial stability um, and less travel. And so those two things were clear to me, like, you know, and this is before wives and kids, like, um, right. Just a sense that like, I didn't want to be a vagabond my entire life. Um, and so the business steps from there were just like, what things can I do that are, have enough freedom involved that I can still play music when I want and a kind of more on my own terms. So less of needing to take a gig from a band if I didn't really want to do it. And that's sort of the right. fate of a side man. Right. Like uh, exactly. you can be the best mandolin player on earth, but you still have to perform in some context. Um, exactly. And so, yeah, I wanted to be the band leader, but didn't play music in a way that I could, could be. Um, and so I, I led other things. And, you know, that was the start of like a, a local real estate business and that grew into. Um, and it, this is all in a very small way, but like, you know, just owning some things like tangible things, restaurants right. and um, other kinds of businesses over the years. So um, the thing that I hope is pervasive in all of that is that there is a creative spirit and sort of a creative energy that maybe is a little restless and wants to try different things. And I just didn't want it to, Definitely. Be, to be bound specifically to the mandolin. So. Well, oftentimes um, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts by a lot of different people and there's like an entrepreneurship um 
thought that to be an entrepreneur is to be an artist because you are restless, you are searching, you're trying to cr uh, create these connections and, and associations, and it's just unclear. It's almost like a puzzle that's unclear until you get it. And, and that's, that's how, at least some, for me, some parts of music are. It's like you're trying to make these connections, you're trying to make something work and make sense of it. And so I think that, yeah, that there's definitely uh, a wide-held belief that entrepreneurship and creativity slash arts are somehow, you know, commingled yeah. to some level. Right. I guess um, like any creative venture, right? Anything where you're trying to push boundaries or do something different, the con right. the context can be whatever it is, I think. Exactly. And that's, it's interesting to me that you're both your parents and uh, the people that are, con like you said, the people concerned with your well-being are like, hey, you're, you're a musician. Why are you trying to get a good job? <laughs> I know. It's, <laughs> kinda I like, know really, it's like, kinda like, sometimes I think only in my family would that be like, I'm, right. I'm grateful for it. It's, you know, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> I think most people do it the other right. way. Uh, well, my parents are the same way. I think that my parents have been very supportive uh, always of my career. And, uh, yeah, they would probably, uh, raise an eyebrow if I were to suddenly d depart from, from music yep. and, uh, focus on something else. Now at the same time, uh, we all have to, uh, make our own path and, and your description of, you know, financial stability, less travel. Those are, those are the two things that usually, um, end the career of a, of a traveling musician. Yeah, that's right. And I think for me, it was just at a younger age probably than most, right? Like, you know, I think I was 28 or 29 and I was like, I, I'm pretty sure I don't want to travel like this forever. And I don't see another way to play the mandolin and earn a living than to do that. Right. Well, a couple of thoughts have come to mind. Uh, one is you, you discussed real estate. I also have a real estate license. Um, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. You're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, specifically Davidson, North Carolina. I yeah. think you buy and sell Davidson specifically. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's what we're known for. So. Cool. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was going to ask you, it seems like there is a connection between real estate and musicians. You and I are not the first or the only musicians who also do real estate. I wonder if you have any thoughts on why that is, that, there, that there's a connection there. Is it just the flexibility, you think, or is there something beyond that that I'm missing? Um. Yeah, the deep spiritual connection between real estate and music. <laughs> I think it's, no, I think it's, it starts with flexibility. And then, um, as you mentioned with your description of, you know, musicians being entrepreneurial in their own creative way, I think the same spirit, when you start working in real estate or sales of any kind, it's like, you got to, you're still making your own path, right? Like, Right. you're defining it your own way. And I think that can feel okay to someone who is identified as a musician and has, you know, valued himself or herself that way. Like it can feel okay to have a second career that can still be on your own terms. Exactly. And there's also this sense, like for me anyway, like as a gigging musician, there's like this, okay, I got the gig. Now I'm going to go perform the task, which is the, the work to get the gig is like a separate task from the task of performing the gig. Yep. And you, you do those, the first task, then you go and you do the second task. You've completed it. You do whatever details they need to, you know, to follow that up. And then, you know, you can, you continue that process. And it's that same way in real estate. There's like the effort to find the client. Then there's the, the task at hand, which is to, solve the problem, sell the house or, or purchase the home, whichever it is that you're trying to, to accomplish. And then, you know, repeat the process. It's, it's a very similar feeling that I get when I'm seeking that, you know, I get that same, um, feeling of success when I do land a client. And then I get that same feeling of success when I complete the task that I know how to do because the, the reason that they hired me in the first place. Right. You've seen so the process. There's, there's that. Exactly. There's that one-two punch that comes with it that feels very much like a gigging, gigging musician. That might be probably the biggest thing for me, that, the biggest similarity for me that, that makes it feel like a, you know, a natural extension. Yeah, and do you find your clients on either side, like music clients or real estate, I don't know if you call them clients, 
your the people who hire you to play gigs versus the people who hire you to help them buy a house are um, are they enamored with you in the same way? <laughs> it's not the same. No, no. I mean that's that's another thing about being a a, a musician. Uh, you know, you and I have both experienced that. Um, situation where you go to a place and people you're the guest of honor basically yeah. you, you show up and and there's a a whole spread waiting for you to you know if, if the gig is good obviously you, but you show up you get treated like you're the guest of honor you perform your show people cheer uh, they say good job even if they don't think it's a good job <laughs> I don't think anybody ever says oh that was a terrible job right. and then uh and then you go to the next town. That's a, that's a completely different experience than most people ever ever encounter at their job. And uh, so yeah, there's that there's that part of it. But I mean, that doesn't take five minutes. I don't. I think that um, for me, as a musician, I'm not a like like I've I've always had this perception that um, you become a musician, and, and if you're like one of the very very few lucky people you become a rock star let's use billy gibbons from zz top as an example he's one of my heroes yeah. so he's a rock star 24 hours a day there's never a time when he's not a rock star wherever he goes people see him and they treat him accordingly you and i are rock stars for maybe like three minutes every <laughs> once a month or something you know That's what i mean right. there's like there's right. one tiny little moment during the middle of a solo on a big festival stage somewhere where oh wow yeah. you know but otherwise, you're just a regular guy, just like everybody else. So, so uh, to transition from musician to uh, real estate agent, when you, you know, only have that tiny moment, uh, it's not that hard. But if you're, you know, Keith Richards or if you're Billy Gibbons, uh, I think you probably have the expectation now that people are going to react to you when they see you in such a way that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Criticism about your performance would probably. Uh, it probably would not compute. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, just I think, um, you know, I've, and there are levels of that, right? Like, and I think it's why it's interesting when I talk to you that, you know, you can, there's a little bit of comparing going on, right? Like there are different ways to do something and how did you arrive where you are? So like, I always wonder, like you're, I think of you as more of a musician than I am. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but um, like more devoted to, to the musical journey. And so I wonder like when you show up to sell a house, if you're a little bit self-conscious, if you're like, Hey, I'm really a musician. I'm doing this because, you know, I feel like I need to, or, you know, it's a financial thing or whatever. But, um, whereas in my world, I'd be like, okay, I show up to a gig and maybe there's a touch of self-consciousness that like, Hey, I'm sort of a musician, but sort of not too. <laughs> hmm. I, and I think that that, the first thing that I think of when you say that is is going back to the idea that as we move forward and, and as society continues to evolve, we're going to lose those distinctions. And uh, yeah, the, the, it's going to blur. You know, you just stepped right over. No problem. I definitely have have like had this more this identity crisis uh, feeling. Not that I, I I mean, I always want to do a good job. So when I. It, when I'm doing the real estate thing, it's it's paramount that I do a good as good of a job as I possibly can do, and be, I think it helps me in the in the sense that because I don't necessarily identify with being uh, a real estate person first, I, I'm think of myself as a musician first. Yeah. Um, it it makes it where I I have no ego about being a real estate person. If I don't know an answer, I just go find the answer, and I just quickly say I don't know what what. How would I know I'm a musician? Basically, it's not necessarily what I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah. but you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I just don't have a hang-up about like somebody having the expectation that I know everything about real estate. I, I'm just a guy who knows enough about real estate to to do this process. And if there's any outlying weirdness that I don't know, I'm not going to pretend I know. I'm just going to say I don't know and go find out as quickly as possible. So it helps me in a way for that reason. Yeah, you're open to the to the help. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that, you know, that maybe that's the part that people will start to, you know, realize that in the, in this idea that I have in my mind that, that people are going to be much more, um, you know, commonly associated with more than one 
uh, area of expertise in their lives. Yeah, I think that's, it's probably valid on many levels. And it's, I think it's good for humans to have multiple interests and not just multiple streams of incomes. But, um, you know, you cultivate one and then there's something that changes in the universe that shifts you in a different direction. Like, you know, it's easy to talk about right now because we've seen a huge shift in the universe, right? Like right. business is closed, tours are canceled. Okay, so what, what are you doing? You know, what makes you feel like a happy, creative, successful person when you're sitting at home? Like, um, and I don't have an answer to that. I'm just sort of, we're just test, yeah. testing the theories. Definitely. We're, yeah, we're on the, we're on the brink of, of discovering what life is going to, going to be like. Yeah. Um, and I think that as far as uh, an economic change, it's going to be pretty massive. I agree. It already is. And so like in my personal world, like when business is totally obliterated, like it just doesn't exist anymore. It may come back, but we're not there yet. There's, right. there's a big space. And so what was, what has been fun for me is to occupy that space with music. And I'm grateful that I still have that connection. Um, and, you know, connecting with musicians I haven't talked to or performed with in a while uh, in different formats is also very interesting. So the one thing I always did that I never really liked about music was having to travel to do it. And that has changed. So the musicians around me are like, okay, let's interact virtually. I'm like, great, let's do it. <laughs> it's like and the, you, the world I would have created 15 of, years ago. <laughs> exactly. Are you, is there some sort of, uh, of technology that you're using to do that in real time? Or are you just trading uh, recordings? Um, the real time has been the biggest challenge. The We used, I say we, the, the folks I've done this with have used Acapella, which is an app. Um, you know, you record your part, pass it along to the next person, they record their part. And at the end of it, you might have four or eight people who have formed a band visually that you can then share with the world. Um, cool. And so that's, that, that's a video thing as well. Yep. It's audio video. So that creates an, another layer of interaction. I think that's good. Um, yeah. The zoom format, which is com more common in like education and business, I don't think is really killing it for musicians. Um, I think that it's a little too glitchy to have like, you know, the, the immediacy you need to literally start a song or end the song at the same time. Um, right. I don't know. I don't know that our technology supports that yet. Right. Like, and what I see, like, you know, I watched my favorite performers like last night I watched a Kev Mo, um, live show on Instagram and it was great because he's just a solo guy with his guitar and one microphone. And so it, it came out to the world very, very nicely. But if you were yeah. a band, like, how would you do that? And if you're in different rooms, how do you do that? I don't know if you know the answer to that or if the answer exists, but, um, I don't know. I know that there are a, a variety of formats for, um, playing in real time. Now, I, I don't know that I've never used them. So I don't know that, that they're effective and I don't know whether video can be going at the same time as audio. Cause the, the goal would be to get the latency so low that there was no lag and you could. Yeah, that's exactly together. right. Like that's the problem. I don't personally don't know how to solve it. Maybe there are people that do. Yeah. I don't know either. Um, a couple of other questions I had for you regarding your music. Mm -hmm. Um, you've got a variety of solo albums. Um, I think before the storm, is that your first solo release 2007? That's correct. Yeah. That was a solo instrumental and mandolin. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to get to was the instrumental part of this. I, I've been recording a lot of instrumentals recently, and I'm going to invite you to uh, to perform on one of them, a song that I've got. Sweet. Um, yeah, uh, we've talked about this a little yep. bit already, but uh, it's my goal to uh, have these micro, these kind of shorter instrumentals uh, going alongside, you know, fuller, more developed songs that have lyrics. But... Um, I'm just curious when you you're you're big on instrumentals basically does that is there something about them that uh intrigues you or is it I just uh, can't what, what sing, sing worth a shit <laughs> <laughs> I 
No. Well, there's a tonal there's a tonality to a, <laughs> to a mandolin also that that I think is it lends itself to instrumental music. It does. I think it is squarely in the vocal register, much like a violin. And okay. so I think there is like the human ear identifies with it in a in a natural way. Um, in the context of a band, I think it can be uh, replace the voice because because of that range. Um, and but the the interest in instrumentals with me started as just part of my musical education. Like the guys I was listening to, you know, jazz guys, like sort of jazz guys, but like the crossover guys, Bela Fleck, um, Jerry Douglas, Sam Bush, like these were kind of bluegrass guys, but kind of jazz guys. And they were playing lots right. of instrumental music. And I just thought it was cool. So I was like, I want to do that. Um, and I was around people who were writing music. And so the thing I felt like I could be good at was writing instrumental music and then just sort of became known for it. Yeah. Cool. And even now in the, you know, the limited, not this month, but, the limited performing I do, I think people come to hear instrumental music. And so they never come in thousands, but the, the, the people who dig instrumental music, I think would are in tune with that. Very cool. I have another question for you about, Oh, it was about your, um, you know, you, you gave me your bio and I'm reading from your bio now where it says uh, that your solo music has been featured on NPR, National Geographic Television, XM Radio. The, uh, the, the album, the first 2007 album, Before the Storm, was a uh, song of the month on iTunes, which, congratulations, that's pretty cool. I think iTunes at this point has like song, song of the half minute. Well, yeah, so, <laughs> right, in terms of evolution, <laughs> so like fast. That. That was a huge deal at that time. That actually generated a lot of sales and a lot of attention. And I was, right. I, that was of all those things that are on that bio, like that was the biggest deal because um, there was like immediate benefit to it, not just financially. Like, it, um, you know, I think a lot of people heard that album in the instrumental mm -hmm. world. And so there was that moment where I was kind of like, okay, I can be one of the instrumental guys, you know? Yeah, definitely. That's super cool. That a moment so, evaporated, it, but you know there was well, that. <laughs> all moments evaporate. That's right. We know that. that. That's for sure. Uh, so, I'm just curious, and I think that the listeners might be curious as well. Um, was there, or there steps that you took in order to place this music in these places, or how do you feel like that that little uh, row of dominoes kind of fell and got you know these things started to happen? Was it? Um, I had, this was, like this was all like elbow grease. This was like post cast iron filter fallout, right? It was like everybody who wanted that band to continue, who had invested in that band's success, like our managers, our agent, our record label, they were all like, don't give up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Thank so you. there was still some pushing at that time. Like that album, particularly our manager was a guy named Russell Carter in Atlanta. And he was like, just let me see what I can do with it. And that was the first thing he did was got it placed on iTunes. Um, and then we hooked up the, he hooked up the cast iron filter catalog with dual tone records in Nashville. And so there was just like a touch of legitimacy left over. Right. And I just wrote that out for a while. <laughs> I got you. Um, I got you. Yeah. Interesting. So are you, do you, like have a, a Michael Orlando music website. Uh, you mentioned that you're not on Instagram or is that what you told me? You, you have to tell I, me what you're on. No, your I, media. I don't, I, I have no format that interacts with other humans. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. I have not nurtured any of those things. Um, I'm going to create a space for you on the haddensayers.com website so people can just access all things. I'll just be your, your, Webmaster. There you go. I appreciate that. When I think <laughs> if you go, there is a michaelorlando.com website. If you go there, I think it pushes you to iTunes to my music. So, okay. Um, in that limited way, that's the format. And you and I have a record together, a Christmas album of all things, Christmas time. Yes, which you can get on iTunes yeah. uh, by searching either my name or Mike's name. Um, and I think that. I'm trying to remember exactly what, what, how that evolved. We were, um, I had just moved to Ohio. You had just, 
um, done this before the Storm album, I guess. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's right. Were you working on it? No, I'd finished it. And then I think our agent, our common agent at that time was like, and they always pushed me to you because they knew like I was maybe in the same way you were an anomaly in the music world. They felt like we would connect was um, just on like, I don't know how to describe this. Just like common background things, maybe like the right. the family path, the educational path, the path to some musical success. Like, um, and you know, I just remember our agent always. This was uh, Jim English who worked for Rick Booth, saying, "You know, Had's just a good guy. Y'all should hang out and you know be good guys together." <laughs> exactly. Um, and he was like, "I don't know if the mandolin works with electric guitar or not, but I think we figured that out." Um, but I think yeah, he was definitely. the one who was like why don't you just do a Christmas album? Cause it's goofy and you both are like at a point in your career where you can tolerate a little bit of that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we weren't out or I wasn't out trying to be a rock star. So it was like, I think it was like socially reasonable to do a Christmas album. I think we both harbored the, you know, the, the idea that we should have a Christmas, each of us, you know, separately had, had this belief that we should, man, we should have a Christmas album. I should have one. And I think the collaboration was, uh, was kind of the tipping point. Yeah, we kind of pushed it forward and we actually did it, which you know, was great. Yeah, and we got to work with Tim Carter. Um, and you mentioned that you were in the Carter Brothers uh, band and toured with them, Tim and Danny Carter, uh, amazing musicians, and uh, with North Carolina Roots, if I... Yeah, that's it. right. So, and again, like the circle back to Carolina was um, agent Newt grew up with those guys and he introduced me to them. And then Timmy Carter was in Nashville building this fabulous recording studio. Um, and he kind of became the guy who was recording acoustic musicians in Nashville. And so um, I felt like it was a huge thing for me to know him and to get access to like other really high quality musicians. And then I think we made that Christmas album in his studio um, and brought in some like Nashville dudes to be around us. But uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, that was a great experience. And Tim Carter is like the nicest guy in the world. So even with all of his success, he doesn't have any, you know, ego or any of that. He's, in fact, he's the banjo player for Hayseed Dixie. <laughs> I know. Right? Still. I, I know. He's probably, like, well, he may not be in Ireland at this moment, but they're like, they are literally like rock stars in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. He's constantly over there working and, and uh, probably not now. He's probably in that beautiful studio. Yeah. But yeah, he's definitely uh, a really fantastic guy. And uh, I'm I'm thankful for you uh, to you for introducing me to him. Yeah, man, he's a yeah he's on the he's on that list, dude. Just good guys who are fabulous musicians. Right on. Can I segue well, something? I, Can I add a? Uh, of course. Like the next Haddon Sayers, Mike Orlando journey is something I've been working on this past month in my endless free time. Um, I don't know that this is a novel concept, so I don't expect it to feel that way. Um, but I've been working on music for adults who have children. It's like I, the original idea was I want to do a children's album, but I want it to be for adults, right? And like you see this in cartoons where you, um, like if you're watching The Simpsons, like there's content for adults, there's content for children, and it works on both levels. And so. Right. I think the important piece of that is to be around other musicians who get that and, you know, have that as part of their like life experience and not to push it on anyone or say, we're going to do a children's album or we're going to do any kind of album, but just that's what I've been thinking about and see some, no kidding, see some like crossover potential for the way you and I have interacted over the years musically. Definitely. I was thinking you were going to tell me that it was going to be a chill record where it was just like some sort of soft background music with like a, you know, lo-fi hip hop beat or something <laughs> <laughs> while we're just chilling My out. Which, which my... Album. <laughs> <laughs> could work too, man. I don't know I how you, tell. I don't know how you feel, but I don't, I'm not totally like chilling out. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. Yeah, that, no, that's an interesting idea. Uh, we'll have to uh, when we when we wrap up here, we'll have to get in, into the, into the shed and start working on how that could. <laughs> that's the next part of the commitment. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat. I I get the sense that, um, uh, that we're not done. That at some point we are going to circle back and uh, and have a, a a part two, a round two discussion. 
especially as things uh, take shape in the new in the new era, so to speak. Absolutely, I think it's since no one knows what's happening or what's going to happen. I think it, you know, every month that passes, there's something new to talk about. Yeah. Well, and uh, one thing I like to do on the podcast um, that I've done with every single podcast guest, all three of them prior to you, um, so you make four, um, is to have uh, an instrumental, uh, the two of us do an instrumental. Now, that means we're going to have to either get on your acapella app and figure (laughs) it out, or you can send me something that I can add to, and I'll put it on the end. That's what I've done with Scotty Miller on the last podcast. The two previous to that I did in person with John Namath and with Sean Carney. And oh, uh, wow. those those also had some uh, some jams at the end. So I'm looking forward to jamming with you uh, right over on, the man. next whatever week or so, if we can pull that together. Sure and thing. Uh, we'll tag it, tag it to the end of this uh, podcast episode. And uh, yeah, we're super looking forward to the next time we talk. I think that uh, our conversations go deep into the the blues as a feeling philosophy, and that's used as a springboard to to get into wide ranging topics that that excite me, and I'm sure will excite others. Well, I hope so. Man. I appreciate it as well. Michael Orlando, thank you so much. Blues is Art Podcast number four. I really appreciate you, brother. You too, man. All right, take, take care. care. All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mr. Michael Orlando. He is a mandolin player of the highest order. He has several titles on Apple Music, if you're interested in checking those out. He also is a restaurateur. He owns two restaurants in Davidson, North Carolina. One is called Mandolino's. The other one is called Flatiron. He is also a real estate broker, and uh, I think he does his best to uh, sell and buy most of the the city's finer properties. So he's a wide-ranging fellow. Check him out when you get a chance. Thank you for tuning in to the Blues is Art podcast. As you can see, we're pretty wide open and lax on uh, what the topics can be, and as long as it somehow starts with the blues and ends with the blues, I think we're all right. If you want to check out other episodes of the Blues is Art podcast, you can go to haddonsayers.com slash podcast. My name is Haddon Sayers, and look around for the next episode. Thank you so much. Blues is Art.